Welcome to In The Soup, the podcast by restauranteurs for restauranteurs. I'm Christian, a former restauranteur who has set up a predictive analytics and forecasting platform. I took what I learned from my days running restaurants to build Tenzo, an app that makes running restaurants much more zen. Tenzo is about giving managers and head office actionable insights. So I thought, what better way to add to that than to talk to real restauranteurs about their journeys to hopefully help others facing the same challenges. Welcome to our first episode, where I talk to Andy Holman, CEO of Ethos. We recorded this just last week, which means that we were both at home due to the ongoing pandemic. We obviously talk about what COVID has meant for the hospitality businesses, but we also talk about the industry pre and post COVID. I hope you enjoy our first episode. Andy, th- thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to chat with me today. And uh, especially in this period of uh, turmoil, I, I'm sure, as with uh, a lot of people, that it's been affecting you, the business, in many ways. And I just l- love to just start by just like asking about you, get a, give us a bit of an introduction about yourself and the business. That would be a great starting point. Um, okay, well, I um, am the chief executive officer for Ethos, which is a Middle East based Um, food operating group. Uh, We have a number of uh, uh, franchise brands that we represent um, in the Middle East. So we have the franchise rights for Tortilla, which is a UK-based sort of California burrito concept, um, for Sushi Art. Uh, Sushi Art is actually our uh, named version of Sushi Shop, which is one of the uh, uh, French-founded, currently owned by Amrest, quick casual uh, uh, sushi brand. Um, we have the franchise rights for a Middle Eastern Lebanese concept called Kebabji. And we have uh, ownership or part ownership in a, a, a locally developed concept called Joga, which does uh, healthier for you wraps, salads, hot dish of the day. Uh, so we're operating 48, or we were prior to the close, close down of some, uh, operating 45 outlets um, with a, a variety of uh, additional sh- uh, units under development, uh, which would take us to about 52 outlets uh, by the end of this year. We, we operate in uh, predominantly in the United Arab Emirates, uh, where we have about 35 of our outlets. And then we have uh, operating outlets in Saudi Arabia and one outlier in Bahrain. Um, so Ethos is, a, as I say, is an operating group, but they is a, effectively a, an investment vehicle on behalf of some fairly well-connected um, prominent Middle Eastern families, um, and uh, also a bunch of uh, European-based uh, uh, senior management um, who who have you know uh, other investments across uh, different categories. So um, yeah, we we've been um, in the business out here. Uh, Ethos was founded about four and a half five years ago. Albeit started trading um, just over three and a half years ago. Um, and um, yeah, we, we operate both restaurants that um, offer dine-in, as well as obviously delivery and takeaway services. And, and how does, uh, on those 45 outlets, how, how does that split across the different brands? Is there, is there one in particular you've got a, a lot of units or is it? Yeah, so uh, we're, we're sort of 15 uh, sushi arts, uh, approximately 15 uh, kebab juice, um, 10 tortillas and um, uh, six jogas. 
Okay, so so, so yeah. quite quite an even spread there, and and uh, tell tell me a little bit about what's uh, what's been happening in the last uh, four four to five weeks, I guess since since COVID has uh, struck. Well, we we were um, like I think many businesses, uh, particularly in the Middle East, sort of uh, flying as we came into the beginning of the year. Um, you know, uh, basically benefiting from growth across the uh, across the markets. Um, we saw as everybody um, early stages that. Uh, COVID coming out of China was going to affect us as um, as travel to and from the main cities in China were, were locked down. Dubai obviously being one of the more, um, uh, one of the busier transit hubs in the world, um, we started to see uh, a kind of a, 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 a shadow appearing at uh, uh, the, the midpoint of January. We felt the, uh, the cold winds at the beginning of February as, as those closures uh, occurred. And then progressively through through the back end of February and the early part of March, um, the the various um, restrictions on travel, and then more more recently on um, you know closing shopping malls and schools and and putting in place all the various attempts to to stop people um, circulating um, came into play. So by the midpoint of February, we we felt. Uh, the, the slowdown significantly. By the end of February, we were um, operating all, but um, so we'd had to close about uh, six or seven outlets. Saudi Arabia were really quite uh, stringent in their close downs quite early on, and then by the uh, by approximately the seventh or eighth of March, we were down to just fifteen outlets um, that were operating in independent of the shopping malls, which were really the first uh, place to get hit. Um, or operating in places that were sort of uh, able to sustain delivery operations. Um, so that's effectively where we are now. Where we we were lucky um, in that we have brands that are very uh, delivery uh, focused. Um, so we're we're probably retaining about 30, 35 percent of our pre um, shutdown uh, revenues, um, but which is a lot better than most, but but clearly still providing a challenge. That, that's amazing, and and so the 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 ones that open now are, are they just doing delivery, or can they do takeout also? No, just delivery now. Just take, delivery. Take out, yeah, takeout uh, because people are being uh, clearly instructed to stay home, um, with the exceptions of of the healthcare professionals and the first responders and all the emergency services. So no takeaway is no longer allowed. And and uh, how how are you finding it from from an operational point of view, like in terms of getting the teams in and and operating, even you know, although it's at at a lower capacity, if you want, but still, that, there must be a lot of challenges in in trying to do that at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, in the initial um, up until about uh, five days ago, uh, there were little or no restrictions on travel, so long as you had the the relevant permits and and you know permissions to travel. Um, the metro in Dubai was operating, taxis and, and public buses were still operating. Uh, increasingly, that's, that's become a little bit tougher. So now um, uh, you can drive. There are restrictions on how many people can go in a car. Um, taxis are still operating, so we can get team members uh, to and from. Um, the metro has, has been closed down, of course. Um, but it's, it's so long as you have the right, uh, the right documentation, um, we can get uh, team members in and out. Our approach has been to to ask who want, who would like to work. I mean, we're, we're not obligating anybody um, to. Obviously, those I've been completely overwhelmed by the the support that you know everybody in the organisation continues to demonstrate. It, it's really 
truly humbling. I mean, you've got uh, people who who have uh, concern for their safety, obviously, but but you know, being sensible and and being in in a business which requires a disciplined approach to health and safety have um, have embraced these impositions very very positively. Um, so, you know, we we've been, as I say, able to operate continually. At the reduced volumes, we've had more than enough employee base to call on, and we're trying to to ensure that we rotate, you know, those that want to work in, in a way that doesn't tire anybody out or overrisk anybody. And how, what what's the um, response of the state been so far in terms of? Uh, so I, I'm sure you know in the UK the government's been. I think obviously their first priority has been very much like let's make sure the the NHS can cope as well as well as possible, and then thinking about employees first and thinking okay, top giving the furlough schemes of eighty percent of uh, their salary up to two and a half thousand pounds, and they've also announced uh, measures around loans and looking at grants and especially around the, the business rates, which there's a lot of debate here as to whether these are the right measures or not. Uh, I, I'd love to hear what Dubai and Saudi Arabia are, have been doing and, and do you think those are the appropriate measures? Well, I think there's a, a different sort of set of, uh, of dynamics in the Middle East than there are maybe in, in the other countries you've mentioned and the European countries. Firstly, I'd say the government here have been remarkably demonstrative on, on all elements of, of containment and control and, uh, and you know, making the, the decisions which are necessary to, to prevent the, 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 sh- the spread of the disease. They've, uh, they've been extremely proactive in, in ensuring that their medical systems are, uh, have got capacity to, to deal with what comes in. I think because of the early action that they've taken, and given the numbers that we're looking at, they're very manageable. I mean, from a healthcare perspective, God Obviously, anybody who's sick is being well taken care of, but there is none of the capacity explosion, you know, uh, stretch that's being applied as, as you would see in other European countries. The, uh, the government have been able to in, uh, address initially some of the, the primary concerns around, you know, how the landlords get to, to, you know, behave in this situation. Banks, of course, Dubai is a slightly unique environment uh, relative to other countries because it's predominantly uh, carbon-based, you know, primary GDP-based. And then within Dubai, you've got a lot of uh, services, financial services and retail and tourism, of course, are the big drivers. So whilst they've been um, held up, the government, I guess, are working through how they'll best support in a trickle-down manner all the various stakeholders. Um, So as yet, there have been no formal announcements on private sector handouts or private sector contributions, nor would, would I think we would expect that. I mean, there will be, uh, I'm sure, a, a, an approach taken to, to, to help liquidity, you know, get to the banks and for the banks to then figure out how to, to best deploy that. Um, but specifically, landlords have been uh, instructed indirectly that there can be no you know, foreclosures on, on real estate for at least another six months. And from a labor perspective, employees' rights are, are very much protected. So, I, yeah, I think that there's a, a sensible response at this point. It's interesting because you know if, if you if you think of uh, of a restaurant like the, the main the main cost center. So obviously you've got the labor, you've got uh, the food, uh, you've got the the, um, the rents. 
uh, and then a bunch of other costs. But if you so clearly, if a restaurant is closed, f- food goes to zero. Which, like, I mean, we should talk about you know what's the impact on the supply chain and, and suppliers in that in that world. Uh, employees also, I guess, uh, I mean, uh, in the UK, a lot are on zero hour contracts or or are in like flexible number of hours. So so as a business, you can reduce those. Uh, to 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 protect the business, but then you've got the issue of you know are they able to, are they able to survive, and then you've got this landlord issue also, which is the UK has had that same approach of foreclose you know say you can't do any foreclosures, and so therefore brands are not paying for the rent, which totally makes sense because they if a restaurant's making zero revenue, clearly they're not going to be able to pay anything. Um, which really pushes that problem down, right? So, so you've got a response that's been quite interesting on the employees, and I think what the UK government has done there is actually pretty sensible. I think there's maybe ways to tweak it that might might make it better in, for other businesses, but that's a separate conversation. But for example, I'm just reflecting on what we did as as Tenzo for our customers was really as soon as as it, this hit, we said, you know. If you're going to be closed, we will not charge you. Clearly, you have no revenue. We will not charge you, and that was well received. Um, and and clearly, that has an impact on our cash flow then, uh, which, as you were saying, is this trickle down. So it, it's interesting to see, and and I think it's very difficult for for governments to kind of look at how they're going to help on all these pieces, right? Because there's just everything so connected. And so so you know, once you've got the employees out, of it, the big question to me now is on the supplier front. Uh, how are you hearing anything from your suppliers? Uh, are they are they saying that there's a risk that they could be going out of business and that the supply chain is suffering because of that? Okay, there's a couple of things. Um, firstly, just to explain, some of the the dynamics in the Middle East are a little bit different. So we we obviously the name of the game for every industry right now is, is cash flow management, right? Protect cash so that you can you can keep paying uh, as much as you're able. The the employees that they're necessary to keep on furlough or keep in in, in play. So that when recovery comes, we can get up to operating speed as fast as possible. Um, from a rent perspective, uh, the Middle East is slightly different because the majority of your leases are under pen, underwritten with post-dated checks, which have already been issued for the entire period of the, the lease. So uh, the first thing to do is obviously write to, to landlords and, and, and uh, engage with them to say, look, the dates at which some of those checks are due to, to be encashed, um, here's how we were set. If that happens, we'd prefer if you didn't, and let's sort of agree how we'll how we'll pursue things which inevitably at this point is a deferral as opposed to you know written off um so we're push i guess we're kicking the can down the road there as opposed to resolving a, a problem as far as the supplier bit is concerned of course like all industries we've we've got relationships with suppliers over a long period of time uh, it's absolutely essential that they can be protected as much as possible um whilst they may right now be able to continue to support us um, there is a point in the future where they also need you know the the resources the cash to be able to to make sure that we can they can fund the the, the resurgence i think the the partly what's happening is that there's a shift so whilst people would previously be going out and buying at restaurants or getting a lot of deliveries they're now going to the supermarket so in absolute volume the same the same you know seven million people still in the emirates are still eating the same volume of times a day they're just accessing that food in a slightly different way. So I don't know. There are some bespoke suppliers that would most definitely have seen a drop off in certain lines. But overall, I think that the mechanics of getting food into the Emirates is is very well organized. There are some restrictions. We're certainly seeing a delay of some items coming over. A priority be given to, to staples, which you would expect. And to some degree, some suppliers, yeah, 
saying we can no longer provide the product at the price that it was at, or, or we just can't. I mean, uh, and we're we're obviously adjusting to that from a menu perspective and from a pricing perspective uh, uh, as as necessary. And do you think uh, so? So, so uh, and, and this is a, a difficult question that you know I think we'll be debating for for, for a long time. Is uh, how do you think this is going to affect the restaurant space in the longer run? Like, how is this changing the dynamics, if you want? Which I know is a difficult question. Well, no, I mean, listen, a lot of this, we're all with time on our hands, sort of crystal ball gazing a lot, right? To try to figure out what, what tectonic shifts will remain fully, you know, forever broken, if you like. Um, I, I don't know. I think that there'll be a rebound, of course. They will ultimately, what people wanted to get when they were engaging with food and beverage remains the same. I mean, people need sustenance. That's not going to change. Um, the way they access it, obviously is is changed for now maybe there'll be some permanent uh, shift in in the mix of delivery dining and takeaway but i suspect it will come back i mean the the drivers of people wanting to go out and and sit down with friends and eat in restaurants isn't going to completely disappear the speed with which people feel confident to do that that we don't know i mean it'll some of it will be imposed on us the, the speed with which we can re-engage some of it will be naturally people will feel a little bit nervous to begin with. Um, but down the line, I'm pretty sure that things will go back to a, a normal. You would suggest that as people in this period have learned to cook again at home and rediscovered the idea of family sitting together and, and you know, rediscovered the, the, the kind of benefits, if you like, of, of being able to sit on a more predictable schedule during the day. Uh, that will probably stick around a bit longer. Um, the quick, I think a lot of the landscape will change as a consequence of people not being able to reopen, right? I mean, uh, that's, that's one thing which will inevitably happen. Now, whether, I guess the, the sort of the, unri- the unasked question is, if from an investment standpoint, the business addresses that by building different facilities or approaching the the high street, which will be, you know, dotted with a lot more, uh, uh, you know, spaces to be filled up as, as businesses have failed. Um, whether or not people are going to jump back into building only restaurants that are 90%, 95% dine-in focused, that probably not. I, I suspect that that will change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what we're seeing, like a lot of countries, is the creativity that the food and beverage sector always brings is in full swing. So virtual brands and building delivery models that are more um, you know, light on asset and, and much more food culinary focused, I think that will definitely stay. Um, and people may be you know, looking at saying, well, with the rise of dark kitchens or virtual kitchens, whatever you want to call them, let's build a facility now that may have a primary function outside for customers who come and sit down, but then have the capacity in the back to do a full variety of things. Um, and that, that from an investment standpoint is likely where I predict things will go. Uh, so t- totally agree on, on that, on that shift to delivery. It's, there's kind of a, uh, that was happening and this crisis is basically accelerating it. Uh, like it's accelerating a lot of other, other trends in, in, in the world at the moment. But do you think specifically on, on the brands that you operate, uh, do you think there are changes that, 
you are thinking of in terms of like the menus because you're thinking some some items might not be as available or, or I'm going to have to focus on like uh, getting uh, certain types of food and also do you think there's there's changes operationally you're thinking of in terms of I don't know like distancing the tables in your in your eat in so that people feel more comfortable uh, doing that or, or, or implementing new hygiene guidelines once you reopen are, are there things like that you guys are starting to think of not not Specifically, I think that when we're given the opportunity to reopen, um, we will have the tables put back as they were previously. Um, if there is still a, a, a requirement uh, that people are obliged to sit two meters apart, because that's the then medical advice, then we'll, we'll comply with that. Um, if, if not, then people will make that choice, right? I mean, if, if we're not going to impose on a customer, um, you know, that, that you have to sit two meters away if, if that is no longer the guidance. Um, but, you know, we'll be sensitive to it. If, if it's obvious that as we start to fill customers' uh, restaurants up, people don't want to sit close by, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take note of that. I, I think that the, the menu side of it, not necessarily. I mean, we're tactically changing menus for the moment, as I said, to meet supply chain uh, availability um, and to some degree to make operating easier so you know we some skus we've taken off the menu because they just don't make um they don't deliver well or they they just operationally too much preparation work for for too little um too little sales um so we, we have you know obviously made that adjustment but the moment we're able to, to put full menu back out then then we will Interesting. And at the beginning, you mentioned that uh, the the target for the growth this year had been to go from forty five to fifty two outlets. I, I believe this year. Um, how how has that changed now? And and what was the vision on the longer term in terms of expansion across the Middle East for Ethos? Well, I think the the um, the first question was the the seven locations that we had uh, to two of which we've already opened this year. They were they were open in the first kind of uh, first month. Um, the the remaining ones are you know obviously progressing in in a state of um, a little bit suspended animation at the moment because they're they're building in, uh, in shopping malls or in retail outlets that um, have themselves been uh, ground to a halt. But we would absolutely uh, look to to complete on those um, uh, where we can. It, from from our perspective as a tenant, we'll be ready. Um, if the master developers uh, are, and in one or two cases, I suspect they might choose to delay longer term, then we'll, we'll sit and wait. As far as the ethos uh, sort of uh, growth strategy is concerned, um, we'd already started a little bit to question the investment returns on, you know, some of the big box restaurants that we built previously. So yes, like everybody, I guess we're looking at the, um, that, um, you know, how do we engage um, with, with this new virtual dark world with our brands? both in a direct way and an indirect way. There are many operators that are starting to, to, to work with, um, you know, like Katopi as, as an example of a, an old company that provides you, in essence, everything they pay. It's a sub-franchise, effectively. Um, there's some merits to look at that. Um, there's also, we're working alongside a lot of our dark kitchen operators, uh, One Kitchen being, being uh, one of the bigger ones out here. Um, and we're seeing some success with that. Um, I think that the the name of the game will clearly or has changed. So real estate, if its only purpose is the one single brand that it's designed for, will over time become less attractive than a piece of real estate that can do num numerous um, things. 
Like I believe that that will that repurposing a strategy will will continue to uh, to be important. Um, a large part of what will change, of course, is how the developers uh, change. I mean, we we are in the Middle East, particularly, the majority of food and beverage sits within a destination uh, environment that's not the restaurant alone. There are some destination restaurants, but typically, the majority of food and beverages is in a, a primary draw. Um, and if that changes, then we would have to to change. And that that's up for for you know, let's see uh, how how that will emerge over the coming years. I was going to say, but other than that, I mean, our investment is is focused on I think equal parts now organic growth of the brands we've got where opportunistically it makes sense and also looking at the the new landscape that will emerge from an acquisition standpoint or an engagement so many operators will have struggled in this period um, and we have you know obviously an ability to to pick and choose who makes sense to work with either through partnerships or in in some cases through acquisition yeah, I mean, there's going to be tremendous opportunities that come out of this for sure. As you, as you say, there's a, if you look at what's happened in China, actually, who have been through this, I mean, it's quite interesting to look at them to see what, what is happening. You're seeing that now, uh, I, think, I think they're like nine weeks after the initial kind of outbreak in a number of parts of the country. You're seeing that about, I think I was reading, 65% of food outlets are now reopen. And most of those are big recognizable brands. Um, so, so actually, uh, you know, that's pointing to a lot of small independents not having struggled or not made it through, um, which which kind of makes sense. You know, like a, an SME typically will hold like, well, on average, 39 days worth of cash to, to survive. So given this has lasted a lot longer than that. Um, a lot of those work won't have gone through and, and the government won't be able to help all of those, you know, clearly. So it, it's there is going to be a, a, a shift, it feels like, to more recognizable brands and also opportunities for them to pick up a, a number of, of, of uh, locations if, they, if, if that's all something that's worth doing. Uh, at a, at a very competitive rate, I imagine. And and is that and are are you looking to add to the ESOS um, portfolio new new brands maybe in terms of when you say acquisitions is that more in terms of sites to your to your existing brands or are you thinking also potentially new brands? Uh, uh, definitely new brands. I mean, we we have always had a one eye on um, companies that have been able to demonstrate a a kind of a good growth curve. Um, and like many uh, founder-led organisations, they they hit a uh, a point where they you know the the next step of growth for them is is too big of a, a journey on their own, and that's definitely the uh, the, the model that we've been applying. Um, and yes, we would we would continue to look at uh, opportunities as they come uh, as they're presented. We have um, uh, another eye on in this in this environment, good brands that have have been unable to to either um sort of survive that may just need you know a um their ip is strong all right and and there's no reason for their ip to be restricted to bricks and mortar you know good quality food can be delivered there's a lot of companies out there who are who have anyway um built their success on on you know uh, delivery based or catering based food that we could also you know um take Put through our existing facilities, or or find other ways to make the make the uh, the food available to customers. Um, and our strength as an operating group isn't purely that we know how to build restaurants, but we know how to manage them and grow them. 
So we have a lot of administrative uh, bandwidth that we can bring to uh, the partnership. Um, so that certainly is something which we've started to explore. And we've been approached on uh, a number of occasions um, from people saying, look, we're, we're, we're right at the end of the tether. Can you help? Um, and we're exploring how that might look. Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I, I wanted to come back to you a little bit. Uh, your, your career has spanned over 35 years across business development, operations, marketing. I'd just love to hear a little bit about how, how, how did the, the journey into food start uh, and, 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 and tell me about how, how it's worked. You, I think you've worked in a number of markets also, UK, Thailand, Middle East. So I'd just love to hear all that. Uh, yeah, it's uh, 35, actually, maybe a little bit more, to be honest with you. But uh... I, I, um, I was um, an army child, so had an early exposure to traveling. I was born, actually, as it happens, in, uh, in the Far East, in Hong Kong. Um, so, so the idea of moving around the globe and, and being exposed to different um, sort of places was, was hardwired into me and my family. Um, I wasn't as successful a student as I could have been. Um, school finally realizing that I was uh, not going to, to give them any uh, accolades. So. They asked me to leave and I left uh, relatively early at 17 and jumped into catering, bars, uh, you know, nightclubs, uh, basically low, lower skilled parts of the industry um, from a very early age. Um, enjoyed that uh, three year period of, of working in and around um, a bit of everything, hotels, restaurants, clubs, you know. And, um, and then at that early 80s, uh, Pizza Hut, who were starting to uh, emerge in the UK um, from 82. They, they had a joint venture agreement with Whitbread. Um, they were advertising for people to, to join them on their management training program. Um, so effectively, I, I jumped into that as they started their expansion in the north of England um, and, and joined Pizza Hut in 1983 to open the York branch as a member of the staff. And then progressively, having sort of been given a more, for the first time, a very structured training process, um, the uh, the journey with Pizza Hut started, and I, I effectively was with Pizza Hut as it was then with PepsiCo restaurants, and then subsequently spun off into its own brand as Yum. Um, worked with a little interruption, pretty much from 1983 to 2006, both in the UK, always as an operator. I, I worked in in a variety of roles, um, both in restaurants and delivery. Uh, moved to the Middle East uh, as the operations sort of franchise support person in uh, 1995. Um, spent the next 10, 12 years in the Middle East, um, again in a variety of roles, as you mentioned, uh, operations, marketing, business development, um, uh, supporting franchisees, and then having spent uh, a good period of time bringing up my family, moved to Thailand. Um, to work with another very sizable operator, the Miner Group, who had a pizza concept um, in Thailand, about 350 outlets, uh, that was um, uh, an extraordinarily uh, kind of role to have, um, both responsible for the growth of that business domestically as well as internationally. Um, so I worked with Miner for uh, effectively about 12 years. Um, until 2018, 17, 18, sorry, when uh, I, I joined this group at uh, Ethos. So yeah, that's the, the kind of the potted uh, group, potted journey. 
that's that's amazing <laughs> and and uh, what, what like looking back at that do you like what advice do you have for young people who are thinking to get into the in, into the industry like what what would be your your advice to them um i have i have youngsters that uh, in my family who are starting to get into it i mean i i i i, I jokingly say sometimes i'm now 56 and i i don't know what i want to be when i grow up but the one thing I would say is this has been a, just a, the most blessed industry to be in. As somebody who would, I think, you know, smart enough to realize what's, what's important and what's not, with no formal qualifications to speak of, it's provided me, um, uh, you know, an opportunity to visit, what is it, 85 countries now, effectively, I think I'm at, oh, wow. um, to live in, uh, even from a work standpoint, to live in four of them. Um, and to to not just learn a trade, but develop um, you know a, a business understanding and and relationships that have absolutely um, you know given me everything. Um, financially, it's given me a, a, a stability. Um, emotionally, it's allowed me to always be challenged to to find things. To there's never a day. And it sounds a bit sort of passe, but there's never been a day where I've woken up and not gone to bed at least a little more um, aware of something or, or educated on something. I mean, you know, this is, this is an industry which, if you choose to engage in it fully, can provide you, uh, you know, whatever it is that you, 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 you desire. Um, I mean, my, my journey into it, I have said my very, very first job ever um, having sort of uh, had to, to sustain myself coming out of school as I did rapidly, uh, was as a window cleaner. Um, and it was, it was an early in the morning, get up five, five o'clock in the morning, go off, typically cold, miserable. Um, I was paid. That was in the UK. Yeah, I was paid 13 pounds a week. Um, <laughs> God, that ages me. Um, but, but the point was that having <laughs> finished washing windows as we did in and around London, around about sort of 10.30 a.m., we would get in the minibus to take us back to the uh, to the to the to the main office, and always stop off somewhere for a breakfast, you know, a hot cup of tea, and 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 it took me a few uh, weeks to to realise that I would spend probably fifty percent of my daily salary having a wonderful breakfast sitting on the side of the road somewhere, um, and the guy who was cooking it was inside, warm, eating for free basically not as miserable as I was and getting to keep all his salary. So that was the light bulb moment which said, you know, if you're going to be somewhere, you might as well go into a place which is going to, you know, provide the basics. So I would ask anybody who, who is looking at their, um, their career path to, to decide what it is that they're looking for. If it's a relationship, but if they are the type of person that wants access to relationships, to, to friendships, to learning, to, to sustenance um, for free, then you're not going to find another industry as as uh, as equipped to give you that. I I love that example of being outside looking into the to the store thinking oh he's getting his food for free that sounds good. Um, I, I I wanted to ask a few quick fire questions before we, we wrap uh, and then hear maybe some final thoughts. So I'm, I'm just, I've just got uh, four here that I'm just going to uh, fire at you and just get, the, get some quick answers. What's your favorite restaurant at the moment? Oh, um, that's a good one. I, am I allowed to say one of my own? 
You can say whatever you want. So if you're going to say one of your own, then you have to give me the one that's not your own. You know, I, I run the risk of upsetting my team. They're all, all my restaurants. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I'm prevaricating, but I have sushi art in, in whenever I can. It's the most fabulous food quality, and, and I just love the, uh, the concept. Tortilla is wonderful from a health food. I mean, it's, uh, sorry, from a comfort food. It's healthy as well, but comfort food. Um, a yoga at lunchtime and kebabji for, 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 for indulgence. So um, I think the, uh, on the spot, I, I would struggle to, to give a single best restaurant. Uh, I, I'm going to pass on that. It's so hard. I mean, it's, 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 it is hard. I, I agree. I mean, it's one of those things. There are so many, especially when you live in, in, in places that have such so many wonderful restaurants, right? Like, like, like cities like Dubai and London have just so many to offer. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hard one. Well, I, I'll, I'll uh, tell you what I'll do. I'll... My, my most recent is, is where I currently am, my home. I've started to cook again. So, so some of what I've been able to make. <laughs> that's is, a good one. Is, is that's a COVID. Shay, Shay that's a COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, favorite pizza topping? Uh, pepperoni and uh, chili and um, jalapenos. Cool. Starter, main or dessert? If you just had one, which one would Starters. it be? Starters, cool. Plural. And, uh, another... Starters, plural. Starters. <laughs> and uh, last meal on earth. Oh. What cuisine? What what kind? Of, what type of cuisine? Oh, that's another tough one. I I probably go with. Uh... One of the, I mean, Thai food is just the most extraordinary in terms of being comfort food, and, and I love it to death. So, something really probably basic like uh, pakaprao, um, uh with chick, chicken pakaprao. I agree. Like Thai food is just so so one Thai and Indian food. Honestly, like they have such diversity and like such amazing flavors. It's just yeah, two two incredible cuisines. Um, well, listen, I I I really really appreciate you 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 doing this, uh, having a chat, uh, especially in this time of of upheaval. With the, uh, I'm I'm sure a lot on your plate. I I I wish you all the best, uh, and uh, hope this this uh, ends quickly and and as smoothly as possible. Next time you're in London, I hope I hope we'll be able to to to, to meet up. Uh, and I don't know if you if you have any closing thoughts, would 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 love to hear them. Well, no, I mean obviously the 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 thoughts go to those who have been really directly impacted. Um, you know, definitely the 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 respect goes to. Uh, I think we have to expect uh, respect the authorities that have been challenged with the idea of of how the hell to handle this. And uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to to know the right thing to do in a small business such as I have. I mean, a mid-sized business, but but, but when you're making decisions on behalf of, uh, of populations, it can be only unimaginably difficult. So my respects go to those who hold that uh, who hold that card uh, at this stage, um, and then of course to to the teams who who I'm working alongside, and they are all over the world, putting themselves out there and, and prepared to to um, try and you know uh, help us all get through this, whether they're first responders, emergency services, healthcare, and the myriad of people involved in in getting us fed and watered. Um, and looked after, uh, you know, it, it's just humbling um, to to see that. And, and we should be very grateful and we should not forget that coming out of this, that that, that um, is an IOU that we should make sure we pay down. Mm -hmm. We really, we can't walk away and just say business as, as usual. 
these are people typically in our society who have always had, um, you know, a, 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 you know, they've received less for what they do. Um, and, and we should be mindful of that and, and supportive of that. Um, T- totally, totally agree with that. I, I think that the, the, the two points that you make that the, 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 the challenges governments have, I, I, I just can't even imagine like the complexity of that. And, and, and you know, have it probably getting thousands of calls a day from different industries. And, and also, I agree with you on, on, on the point of like of, of the first responders and, and, and really making sure I hope politicians coming out of this will, will, will be able to communicate clearly that, you know, there is a uh, taxes need to be paid so that we can like have systems to cope with, um, you know, with, with these kind of conditions. And, and hopefully that, that argument, no one will be able to to uh, to dismiss it. So, um, yep. Well, it, totally, totally agree. It's on us to force that through. We're, we're the people that make the, uh, uh, you know, put the pressure on governments and, and we need to be, we need to have long memories in this case. Definitely. Well, listen, th- thank you very much. Really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for listening. If you want even more insights and tips, you can head over to Tenzo's blog linked in the description or follow at Tenzo Inc. on Twitter and LinkedIn and Tenzo PPL on Instagram. Hope you have a great day.